Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Wilson, you sent the game-winning email at the buzzer, avoiding a 4.55 meeting on everyone's calendar. How did you do it? I got a huge assist from Grammarly, an AI writing partner that helped me make my point. 96% of Grammarly users say that it helps them craft more impactful writing. Would you agree? Grammarly helped adjust my tone to navigate tough work conversations. And it works everywhere I write, so I can quickly communicate effectively. Your teammate used Grammarly to summarize an important document, making a three-pointer. How did he do it? It only took one click. When everyone uses Grammarly, everything just makes sense. You made an incredible slam dunk to end the game. The meeting was canceled, and your team will go home champions. Go to Grammarly.com podcast to download it for free. That's Grammarly.com podcast. Easier said, done. Welcome to the Edge of Sports Podcast. I'm Dave Zirin, joined again by Arya Shirazi to talk some serious hoops. We've been usually talking about a basketball butterfly effect, about how if one thing could have gone differently, all of NBA history could be dramatically altered, kind of like, you know, back to the future. That's the power of love. But instead, what we're going to talk about today is what we're calling forgotten greatness of the last generation players not remembered or really referenced in today's NBA, but absolutely should be. And our rules for these players, we've got about six of them, nine technically, as you'll find out. But our rules are no Hall of Famers, no slam dunk champs, no three-point shootout champs, no one who is in any way kind of pop culture famous, no one who is in any way political famous. We're not talking Mahmoud Abdul Raouf or Craig Hodges. Bless those dudes. We're talking about people who literally just aren't talked about. Not the sort of people who people say, you know who's never talked about? That person. No, because then that person is being talked about. These are people who aren't being talked about even by people who don't talk about people that you're not supposed to talk about. Or words to that effect. Now, just to give people uh, the genesis before I start naming the players, uh, and then I want Arya to come in and comment on this to see if he's he agrees with me on how we came up with this idea. Arya and I were talking about Bernard King, the New York Nick great, in our belief that he deserves greater esteem and acclaim for what a remarkable scorer he was. And we also were talking about how we will almost certainly never see a player like him again. I mean, a 6'5 post player who relied on a quick release off post plays. It's just not the game anymore. But then we started saying, well, wait a minute. Bernard King's in the Hall of Fame. I mean, how much more acclaim, uh, uh, esteem and acclaim do we really want for the guy? He's in the freaking Hall of Fame, which led to this discussion of, well, who's not in the Hall of Fame? Who's not pop culture or political famous? 
who are just people who we think deserve to be remembered. Shiraz, how you doing, man? Doing okay, man. That, that's that right. <laughs> what did you say? I'm sorry. I said, I'm looking forward to talking about these guys, whoever they may be. Yes. And did I get the story right about our discussion of King? Is there anything you want to add to that? No, no, uh, you're right. Bernard kind of riffing on Bernard kind of kicked this off. Uh, and then uh, we realized that Bernard kind of outgrew what our criteria was. So we'll be talking about some really great ballers, some players who were uh, important in when there were a lot of important players at the top of their games, these guys uh, were able to play really with the best of them and their, uh, and their top seasons really reflected that. Uh, so, uh, so kick it off. Roland, you know, some of these folks we're going to talk about for a long time, some just a short time. They were more chosen because we actually do think these people are important to the history of the game. So either because their skill set is now obsolete or because their skill set has become uh, something that we now see quite normally. So the first person I'm going to say is a player from the 1980s Milwaukee Bucks. A lot of people remember that team for Hall of Famer Sidney Moncrief or Marcus Johnson, who went on to a very critical performance in White Men Can't Jump. But the player, so, you know, pop culture famous and, and the like. But the person that I wanted to remember is Paul Pressey. Now, a lot of folks don't remember Paul Pressey. He played 11 years. He averaged 12 points a game and five assists. His best year was going 16, 7, and 5. 16 points, 7 boards, 5 assists. But that's not, you know, so those stats seem whatever. But he actually was a very important player. Shiraz, do you want to pick it up from there? As you just said, Pressy really was not about the numbers. Uh, and on some really, really good Milwaukee Bucks teams, you named a couple of the top guys. Uh, the Bucks in the 80s were kind of the perennial bridesmaids in the East. We had talked uh, recently about how the uh, the top of the league in the 80s was very exclusive. And in the East, it was run uh, almost entirely by the Celtics and 76ers until the very end of the decade when the Pistons became the top team in the conference. But during the Celtics and, Sis and Sixers dominance at the top of the East, the Bucks almost always finished second or third, but very often second to whichever one of those teams uh, was on top in any particular season. So uh, those Milwaukee teams, which again, because they never even reached one finals, uh, are somewhat, uh, somewhat forgotten as to how consistently good they were under Hall of Fame coach Don Nelson. I think Nelly uh, is, is kind of the figure from those Milwaukee teams of the 80s who now resonates the most. Uh, Agreed on but, that times 100, that if you're but, talking about the star of the team, it was probably the coach. You know, and uh, although, as you as you had said, Moncrief was uh, an all-star guard for, for a good while when that conference was packed with all-star guards. 
Uh, but Presti, at the time that we're talking about, uh, was kind of a one-of-a-kind player, even at that time. And it makes sense that it's under Nelson that uh, that that his role evolved and he kind of created a position that then became uh, du uh, more duplicated as, uh, as as the league went into the 90s. Tressy was kind of the first person I remember being spoken of as a point forward. And this, again, was at a time when it was positioned basketball. We hear all the time now about positionless basketball. Everybody's got to be able to handle and shoot threes. In the 80s, it was absolutely positioned basketball. And if there wasn't just a singular description for each position, and there wasn't necessarily because the best players at every position uh, diversified their games more than their peers, which is what made them the best at their positions. But, uh, you know, uh, we knew what a center was supposed to do. We knew what a shooting guard was supposed to do. We knew generally what a small forward was supposed to do. Those positions were much more defined and they uh, were often defined by height. And so Pressy for the Bucks was positionally the small forward. But he handled the ball. He initiated the offense, uh, which is what made him the point forward. There was nobody else at that time who fit that description. Magic Johnson was 6'9", but was absolutely the point guard. It's kind of what made him magic, the fact that he was 6'9". But, uh, but he wasn't, but, but he was the point guard for the Lakers. Pressy, uh, really ran the point for the Milwaukee Bucks, uh, making him probably at the time the second tallest uh, playmaker in the league. But what really rounded out Pressy's game and made him a very, very impactful player was, uh, I remember him being called, in a way, the best defensive player in the league. Uh, yeah, you know, first team twice. And was kind of a stopper in a way. So really guarded the opponent's uh, top scorer uh, from one to four. And again, at a time when, you know, you watch defenses now, everything is switching. Players are instructed not to fight through screens. You just constantly switch. You just switch uh, to pick up the ball handler or the shooter. At this time, you fought through screens. You did not get switched on because a big guy getting switched on to a little guy was two points. Uh, or, uh, or a guard being matched out on, on a big man was getting right into the lane. So for Pressy to be able to be such an elite multi-positional defender... Uh, really added a crucial element to the success of that Milwaukee team and was early in Nelson being branded as an innovator. 
when he got to Golden State, Chris Mullen assumed that role. So we're talking about a completely different player than than Pressy, a, a dead eye shooter, uh, and a much higher quality offensive player than than Paul. And that only lasted for a couple of years until Tim Hardaway came, uh, was drafted as much more of the traditional point guard, but. Uh, but Nelson allowing Pressy to kind of break the confines of those entrenched positional roles was kind of the beginning of him uh, uh, playing with those traditional positions and how they were and how they were looked at and uh, creating looks on both offense and defense that really hadn't been seen and then and kind of moving the league forward in a way by introducing those concepts uh which other teams had to recognize uh prepare for and at times wind up adopting uh so just wrapping up with the bucks uh, I, I consider those bucks teams in a way when I think of those bucks teams very often the first name I think of is Terry Cummings who's another player who could fit right into this conversation, a multi-time all-star for a couple of different teams, uh, a leading scorer. He kind of took the, the mantle from Moncrief. Once Moncrief became older and more injured, Cummings was really the focal point. Uh, and, and really, I don't think is thought of, is spoken of as much as his talent and career could merit. But Paul Pressey was really, uh, you know, a very unique player, a little bit ahead of his time. And because he never, ever had a reliable jump shot, uh, I don't know if he would uh, be entrusted to play the 35 minutes a night in today's NBA, uh, you know, in order to play uh those multiple roles to the extent that he did uh but a really really good player from uh, a bygone era of ball see but i see him as like the 1980s draymond green and i think not not because of green's histrionics obviously but just like not really a shooter but someone you could run the point from the forward position i know it's different but the Sidney Moncrief Steph thing is also kind of interesting because the same way Green kind of unlocks Steph, unlocks Steph by taking up a lot of those traditional point guard duties, Pressy really unlocked Moncrief to be the scorer that he really was born to be and that he wasn't, for example, in Arkansas where he strictly ran the point. So I see, and of course, you know, one of our guys, Anthony Mason, under Nelson, that was very explicit at the time about Mason playing that Paul Pressey role of the point forward because we weren't in the positionless land yet. So seeing Big Mace take the ball up the court in 1995 was was a quite the staggering sight. But yeah, that's Paul Pressey. We just gave him a lot more time than anyone has in two decades. Okay, but the defense. I'm glad you mentioned the defensive stopper thing though because that was special and. It's the sort of thing where if the Bucks, this is, you know, our championship culture, if the Bucks had been able to crack that ceiling, I think we would remember Pressy much more as the innovator that he was. I Agreed. Yeah. 
The next person on the list here is, uh, I don't know how long we're going to spend with him, but I, this was, this was my suggestion because I thought it was really someone I wanted to see what your thoughts were about. And that's Jeff Malone. And I wanted to talk about, no one talks about Jeff Malone. And I wanted to talk about Jeff Malone because he's not a player you see anymore. I mean, I looked up his stats. He was a ninth, I mean, a great career, 19 points per game for his career. His best season was 24.3, but he also shot 28% from three for his career. So that's a perimeter, a guy who made his living. He only averaged two boards and two assists in his career. His whole living was shooting. And he was once thought as like the missing championship piece for the Stockton, Carl Malone, Utah Jazz. And then they traded him for Hornacek, who actually did help them get to the finals and played more of the role they wanted for Jeff Malone. But this idea of being this archetype that now no longer exists, a kind of dinosaur, if you will, uh, to me made him worth us talking about because I feel like almost like the NBA wants us to forget that there was a time where the best shooters could not shoot threes. I remember when Jeff Malone playing for the Bullets was pretty much regarded as the best jump shooter coming off screens in the league. Mm. And that was a really good thing to be regarded as. Uh, this is a recurring theme of this discussion because of the time frame uh, of the players that we're talking about. But we are really talking about an NBA that is really largely played inside the three-point line. It is what made Bernard King such an outstanding player and one whose game, when viewed in, when just looked at, the way he got it done in retrospect doesn't always translate because so much of it is done in the paint and not by dunking. But Jeff Malone uh, was, uh, for those who weren't a fan of Jeff, they would call him a chucker. Uh, he really did not contribute in almost any other area. In a way, he was the anti-Paul Press. We've just talked about how Pressy was uh, was so strong in just about every aspect of the game, except for shooting. Jeff Malone really wasn't interested in any other aspect of the game except for shooting. But he was one of the very, very best shooters in the league. As you said, an all-star level, an all-star awarded guard in Washington. Uh, it's funny, I mean, Jeff really... Uh, he went from kind of Malone and Malone to Malone and Malone. Mm. Uh, Jeff Jeff played a couple of years with Moses in Washington uh, when Moses was still one of the best centers in the league. And uh, I remember thinking that that combination could maybe take Washington uh, a little deep into the playoffs and didn't. Uh, and then, as you had said, he was then looked at as possibly the piece to get the Jazz into the finals in the West by linking up with Carl Malone 
uh, and Stockton. And they didn't get there with Jeff. Uh, they wound up getting there with Hornacek, who for a long time was kind of, Jeff Hornacek was considered a poor man's Jeff Malone. In a way, they had similar games, but Malone seemed to be better. Uh, Hornacek wound up being able to expand his range into uh, to the three-point line at a time when the three was being more and more utilized as a regular weapon. Hornacek was able to make that... Uh, uh, to make that extension, Malone didn't seem to have the range, but uh, it, it's kind of, you know, you, you had talked about the criteria as to the players that, that we're going to be talking about. And really, if you if you made the finals or were even, you know, a notable role player in the finals, your name and your reputation uh, lives on often longer than players who didn't get to that level, but were certainly considered uh, higher level players at the time. Uh, I think Jeff Malone is a prime example. He was one of the best in the league in uh, at a game that uh, that doesn't really resemble the game of today. You know, I, I didn't tell you the reason why I wanted to talk about Jeff Malone. As you, as you know, I live in D.C. And, you know, I've been to more than my share of Wizards games over the years. And, you know, it's, it's a very sorry franchise by, by any measure. And it's such a sorry franchise that, you know, we do things like Don McLean bobblehead nights. Not, not literally, but it's like any scrape of decent history is celebrated to the nth degree. Like Gilbert Arenas's new line of hats. First 10,000 people gets a hat. I mean, my God. And Jeff Malone was actually this big time 20 point a game player for quite a few years with the Bullets. Yet you'd never know that he was part of the team's history. I mean, it's just, it's just bizarre to me. And um, if, if they won't remember Jeff Malone, Gosh damn it, we will. I would be proud to display a Jeff Malone bobblehead on my mantle. I would too. I mean, I don't even begin to know why that's even a question. I mean, it's a, it's a lot better than the usual stuff they do. Brent Price nights. I don't know. <laughs> Naming people. I hope not. Okay, the third person's want to yearn. Um, Lafayette Fat Lever. Part of, just a quick introduction, best known for his time on the Denver Nuggets, part of a killer trade for the Nugs, once regarded as one of the great steel trades of all time before a lot of the players involved petered out for various reasons. But it was Lafayette Lever, a terrific power forward named Calvin Natt, a good center named Wayne Cooper, and a number one pick for Kiki Vandaway. And at the time when Lafayette Lever revealed himself to be Lafayette Lever, Fat Lever, people were like, how did this trade ever happen? But here, here's the, the, the numbers on Fat Lever. For his career, he averaged 14, six and six, which you know is, is solid. It speaks of an all around player. 
but let me read you his best seasons. 19, 9, and 8. 20, 9, and 8. Two-time All-Star. Top 10 MVP guy twice. And just the last number for him. The man was six foot three, 170 pounds. Not, not fat. Yet still they called him Fat Lever. Shiraz, your memories of Fat Lever. To say that triple doubles have kind of lost their mystique, I think would be an understatement. Once Russell Westbrook averaged a triple double for multiple seasons, uh, it, it wasn't the rarity and uh, and the and the truly impressive game that it once was. Uh, you know, now it's kind of odd if. Uh, Sabonis and Doncic don't get a triple double, but the time in the eighties, especially the mid eighties, the only players who really you heard about getting triple doubles were Magic Johnson, who always led the league, and Lafayette Lever, and as you said, uh. You know, he looked all of 170 pounds, and he was not a crazy explosive athlete. Right. Uh, he didn't even necessarily, he just kind of looked like a guy on the street. Like he didn't, you know, look like, uh, like he would be able to compete and excel among NBA players. But Lever was, again, you, you talked about Pressy. Uh, Lever w was a better player than Pressy, and in my opinion, and also just as unique. Uh, Lever could, could really do it all, and those numbers bore that out. Uh, he... He was an incredibly intelligent player. And play, you know, you talked about the steal that the Nuggets got, the bounty in exchange for Vandaway. Uh, I really remember Lever on the Nuggets teamed up with Alex English. Uh, and if there was a better, smoother two-point jump shooter than Jeff Malone, it was Alex English. Uh who was just a, a incredibly silky shooter and great scorer. And Lever was kind of the perfect, the perfect guy to play off of and alongside English because Lever scrapped to get points and would get 15, you know, 15 to 20 points a game off cuts, off offensive rebounds, off running the break, every every which way. And another guy who could guard multi-positions and somehow grab eight, nine, ten rebounds a night uh, against the front courts of the NBA. At that time, I I remember after his great years in Denver, Lever was kind of a 
high profile free agent signing by the Mavericks. And this was at a time when the Mavericks had had some playoff success and were hoping to supplant the Lakers at the top of the West. And Lever was looked at as uh, maybe the essential final piece to that happening. Uh, I think for a variety of reasons, some of them Roy Tarpley related, uh, the Mavs' grand plans fell apart from the start. But I believe in uh, Lever gets hurt right away, like in the first month of that first year, and is never an impact player. It's wild. I, I think he probably plays for a few years, but I do not remember anything having to do with Fat Lever after him getting hurt in Dallas. Uh, so really the years that I remember Lever are actually kind of only a few, but the impact he had during those years uh, certainly resonates. Yeah, and look, looking at somebody 6'3", 170 without ups, averaging nine boards a game, multiple seasons, during an era when power forwards would punch you in the mouth, the era of people like Michael Cage and Oakley and Maurice Lucas, like mean motherfuckers. And here's Fat Lever at 6'3", not being moved. I mean, he was fearless for what he put his head into um, back then and effective. And I think it's, it's good to remember him because I don't know, I think we live in an era right now where players could stand to be a little bit more hard nosed. I know that makes me sound like old man yelling at cloud, but I like the idea of a guy and it's why I love Russell Westbrook, even though obviously he's a crazy athlete, but I love people that height who are not afraid to mix things up. And that was Fat Lever for sure. Um, great choice on your part. All right, the next one, and this is going to be fun for me to introduce. We don't talk about them nearly enough. The 1987 Western Conference Final making Seattle Supersonics. Led by Xavier McDaniel, Dale Ellis, and Tom Chambers. All three averaging 23 points per game, at least, during that 86-87 season. And that year they finished, if you remember Shiraz, under 500 in the regular season, but then went on this terrific playoff run that included beating Akeem and the Rockets in six games. And in that sixth game, Akeem drops 49 and guarded by Alton Lister, famous for getting dunked on Sean Kemp. And... I mean, just an amazing year. The All-Star Game was in Seattle that year. Chambers won the MVP award in front of 35,000 people. How is there not a team um, in Seattle is just one of the great crimes, great basketball town. And the last thing I'll say before, oh, Dale Ellis did win most improved player that year with 25 a game. A little funny thing about that is that that was the first year of uh, most improved player. It used to be comeback player, but they had to stop that because all the comeback players were coming back from drugs. So they thought that was a bad look. So they turned it to most improved, which I think they should go back to best rehab player, which is, sorry, 
just funny to me. They were like, we got to give it to Michael Ray Richardson again? Like, yes. Four out of five years. So, but then here's where the NBA is so cruel. They make the Western Conference Finals. They should have become a team that has its own 30 for 30 documentary. But then they're swept by the Lakers. It's sort of like, oh, so they're kind of pretenders to the throne. They never made it to the Western Conference Finals again. The stars feuded. The team broke up. The playoffs are cruel. We know this. But what we don't remember, partly because I think of the erasure of the Seattle Supersonics as a dope-ass franchise, we forget that they had three players averaging 23 a game and doing so in dynamic fashion. Shiraz, like, like rookie point guard Nate McMillan on that team, I now throw you the rock. Thank you, Nate. Uh, I did not remember that that Sonics team was under 500. That kind of makes it even more impressive because uh, I remember them being good, probably better than they actually were. Uh, I, I remember them being an un making that underdog run through two rounds uh, before getting swept by the Lakers who would go on and win the championship. Uh, but as you said, it was, uh, and I actually don't, I don't think it's crazy commonplace now or since. I'm sure it's been done several times that I can't think of. But <clears throat> three players averaging 20 a game, let alone 23 plus, uh, was very unique. And, and it, it made them a fearsome offensive team in a, in, in a way that nobody else quite had that. You know, it was probably somewhat rare for two players on the same team to average 20 a game. Uh, sure, sure, it happened throughout the league, but we had talked about the league at that time having some more defined roles, both positionally and uh, roles within the team. And there were, you know, there was the leading, the primary score, and then the secondary score and kind of a pecking order. So having multiple 20-point scorers on the same team uh, was notable, and certainly having three uh, was even more impressive. And it's because of who those three players were. Uh, you know, as 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 you had said, it's too bad that they didn't get a longer run as a trio because. Uh, it's kind of hard to imagine fucking that team up too bad when you have three offensive players like that. They really did not duplicate one another, which is what kind of made that three-headed uh, score uh, scoring tandem uh, so unique. Uh, Ellis is a player I've always loved. Ellis was, I think he was the leading scorer of the three. Ellis was a guy who really utilized the three-point shot when the best three-point shooters in the league were maybe putting up three a game. 
again, we're really talking about a two-point game and very often a game played largely within the paint. Uh, and Ellis was a guy who whose range was worked into uh, Seattle's primary game plan. And along with Larry Bird and Craig Hodges and maybe one or two others, was really at the forefront of the three-point shot becoming a, uh, a weapon that, that every team started to utilize leading you know 30 years later to the game that it is now really dictated by the three what's that the current dystopia uh <laughs> so chambers was uh really a great offensive player uh a a 610 forward uh with a really nice jump shot, very consistent jump shot who could post up smaller guys. He was about 6'10", so he could score inside, got to the line a fair amount every game, uh, went guarded by players his size, could put the ball on the floor and go to the hoop, but was a great athlete. I mean, I'm really not online very much, but there are probably several YouTube collections of Tom Chambers dunking over people. Yes. Uh, and, you know, and at 6'10", you know, he had a body that could really extend and go over people. He was kind of one of the first big man dunkers, uh, you know, kind of gaining a reputation as that kind of player. Uh, so a very, very, very uh, varied offensive game. And Chambers, I think, is the first to leave. He's the first to leave Seattle. And he actually goes on to have his best seasons as an all-star forward for the Suns, for some really good Suns teams. I think the Suns teams slowly climbing up the West right before Barkley arrives. So Chambers, uh, as well as Ellis, really had an all-star career. Xavier McDaniel, uh, <clears throat> because of his look and his uh, intensity and tenacity, uh, is kind of the most, I, I think very often the most famous of those three or the one most instantly thought of when those 80 Sonics teams are brought up. And he was the third crucial component uh, of the, of the Sonics, uh, a forward who played much bigger than his size uh, and really did a lot of work inside against much bigger dudes. Uh, McDaniel uh, is, is the last, is the youngest of the three. And I think that he's actually the player who, once he leaves Seattle, has the least notable 
post-Sonics career. I know that he had, I, I know he had like one kind of uh, exciting year with the Riley Knicks that unfortunately was limited to just that one year. And I think that's kind of his last year as uh, an all-star caliber player. Uh, so McDaniel really, I think, has the shortest run in the NBA of the three. And as you said, that team kind of peaks with that upset run ending in the Western Conference Finals before the three players go their various ways. Uh, and in the case of Ellison Chambers, have lengthy careers uh, after leaving Seattle. But uh, yeah, if there ever was a 30 for 30 on that team, I would definitely watch it. Uh, the Sonics are... Are, are a unique entry in in kind of the wonderful carnival that was the 80s NBA and uh, and are more forgotten today uh, because of their uh, their fleeting run than they should be. Yeah, a couple of quick notes here. Um, first of all, I looked it up while you were talking. Yes. Did I get a bunch of stuff wrong? Everything was wrong. Uh, there was never a team in Seattle. Um, it was in Olympia. Um, no, this they were. This is the only trio to ever average 23 a game in NBA. Awesome. Uh, one team had two people over 23 and then someone with 22.9. So I feel churlish in not including them. And that was Run TMC. Oh, wow. They never, I would have thought Run TMC, you know, had... I wouldn't have even oh, been surprised if, if they had all put up 24 in a year, but I would have been wrong. Yeah, I mean, well, two of them did. Uh, it was Hardaway, though, who topped out. Run TMC, of course, we mean the early 90s Warriors, Chris Mullen, Mitch Richmond, and Timmy Hardaway. Hardaway topped out at 22.9 the year Mullen went 26 in Richmond, 24. Another great team and another Don Nelson. And the other thing I'll say is that in a very, very, very obscure way, all three of the people we just named sort of break our rule as far as people who didn't make an impact pop culturally. And I'll just say very quickly, um, the Chambers dunk on Mark Jackson, where his knees climb up Jackson's chest and he throws it down on him, is always played when they do NBA greatest dunks of all time. So that makes, gives him a little bit, he was, but he was a son then. So that doesn't really count. Um, Dale Ellis. Well, that's also not really fair because Jackson was like six foot one and couldn't jump and have a bit of a gut. So how really impressive is it to dunk on Mark Jackson, Tom? If it was fat lever, he would have twisted Tom Chambers' balls off. That's why it's impressive. Also, <laughs> um, <awesome>. sorry. That's... <laughs> Seems a little unfair to Fat Lever to say he would do something so horrific. Um, very unfair. Very unfair. So Xavier McDaniel, of course, had a cameo in the movie Singles, where he told Cameron Scott to uh, not come when he was having sex. Uh, I'm trying to remember the actor who Scott was in that scene with. That's yeah, fine. Doesn't matter. Um, I think that if today's NBA fan 
doesn't really know Xavier McDaniel as a player, they're probably not going to know the movie Singles. Good point. Not a, it's not a, not a new release anymore. No, another forgotten something. Singles. Yeah, it was kind of shitty. But the, the, and the third thing is Dale Ellis. One thing he's known for pop culturally is, you know, the famous Larry Bird three-point contest victory where he comes in the locker room and he says, which one of you is coming in second? And then he hits the winning shot with his finger up in the air on the last ball. And every time there's a bird documentary, everybody says, oh, that's a great you know moment of Larry trash talking his way to victory and having a sense of the moment. Well, the guy he beat was Dale Ellis. And Dale oh, Ellis sure. was wicked pissed afterwards and went around the league calling him Lucky Larry. Said, don't call him Larry Legend, call him Lucky Larry. And I always kind of love that about Dale Ellis, like that he didn't, you know, he didn't allow, he didn't want to be part of the Larry Bird mythos. He was, he was too pissed off for that. Unfortunately, Lucky Larry didn't stick. That uh, the, the way Dale wanted it to. Uh, <laughs> but it, it makes me like Ellis even more. Yeah, absolutely. Fuck you, Larry. What a jerk. What an asshole. Which one of you is coming in second? It's like, come on, man. It's the three-point contest. Have a good time. All right. The next person, this one is one of mine, is Charles Linwood Buck Williams out of the University of Maryland. Somewhat more remembered because of his time in Portland when they made a couple of championship runs as their power forward. But I love this guy growing up, Shiraz. Like when I was a kid, I had all those Sports Illustrated posters up in my room. I had two of Buck Williams. One of Buck Williams and one of Isaiah Thomas that I only got because it's a picture of Isaiah trying to score on Buck Williams. That's how much of a fan I was of Buck Williams. Now, look at this career, man. For his career, and it was a long career, 13 points and 10 boards on 55% shooting. Not exactly a lightweight. You know, not exactly. First six seasons, got 1,000 boards five times. That's 12.2 a game, and he played at least 81 games all of those years. Now, he's sort of in the pop cultural firmament in a way that I don't like, in that every time they do some Michael Jordan retrospective or in the last dance, they always show, of course, the comeback victory in game six against Portland to win the title when they came back from a million points down. And part of that, comeback was when Williams was holding the ball and Jordan punches it out from behind, grabs it, immediately scores, and everybody goes ooh-la-la. But Buck Williams needs to be remembered as being part of an era and a generation of power forwards that played every game, took no guff, and could give you 10 rebounds a game in their sleep. So Buck Williams, to me, deserves to be remembered hell even in college park near where i live by umd you're much more likely to hear about stevie franchise steve francis than you are buck williams and god damn it that's got to change in the mid 80s just move on say the word <laughs> in the mid 80s 
I was kind of, I kind of low down thought the Nets were cool. And I never would have, you know, admitted that to any of my friends or anyone I knew because, you know, everything from Jersey sucked. But they had like the uniforms with like the white and blue with the with the stars on the side. They had Daryl Dawkins at center, Michael Ray Richardson, uh, Albert King, Bernard's younger brother. That was kind of cool. And Buck Williams at power forward. What a power forward was supposed to be. What a power, how a power forward was supposed to play. An adult. Buck Williams was an adult. And and Buck, again, you know, on those Nets teams that were kind of sneaky good before they weren't, Buck was the Perfect. He was such a blue-collar player. Uh, it, even now, I don't can't really think of what Buck's offensive game was, besides working really hard. Uh, you know, you talked about his numbers, and uh, you know when he was in Jersey, he had outstanding numbers really all-star numbers but again it's like you know how you know how does he in the least flashy way possible and it's when he is traded to portland he's looked at as the missing piece for the blazers and instantly turns out to be exactly that I think he goes, they go to the finals that first year and they go two of the three years, mm-hmm. uh, losing both times. But I mean, it instantly pays the best dividends that it possibly could and makes sense that if Buck is your fourth option on offense and his game is complementing and supporting and enhancing more talented offensive players, you are a better team than if he is your first or second option. But he's also a top 20 MVP finisher five times in his career. If those Trailblazers win titles, there's, you know, you and I have talked about how the NBA Hall of Fame has a lower bar than other Hall of Fames. I think that's just a fact. But if he wins titles with those Portland teams, we're having a whole different discussion about this guy. It actually, Buck is the perfect example of a, whether or not your kind of reputation uh, will live on. You know, you would you had talked about the criteria for the players that we're including here. Uh, You know, you can't be in the hall. You certainly can't have won an MVP. You can't have, 
you know, won a slam dunk contest or like a, or a major award. The other thing is you can't have played a big role on a championship team. Yeah. And that's what kind of because as decades pass, not every all-star player can be remembered <laughs> as though it was the present new all-star players are taking their place. Uh, but championships are forever. So when championships are revisited, it is the players who made up that championship whose name tends to live on through generations. The, the perfect, the, the biggest example I can think of is Robert Ori. Mm. Robert Ori on his own, I consider a lesser NBA player than every single player that we've kind of spotlighted today. Uh, and that is not to uh, insult Ori in any way. I think uh, younger fans are somewhat, I think, surprised when they look at Ori's career stats, how kind of unremarkable his stats are because Robert Ori's legend was made from the fact that he has won seven championship rings, which is unreal uh, as a player, and played a played a, a, a vital role of varied size on all of those teams. Now, uh, with him, the question is, were they... Were those teams championship teams because Ori was a component? Or was Ori the beneficiary of always being on teams capable of contending for a championship and then carved out a specific spot on teams that did, leading to his reputation? These players here, Buck is a player who even, as you said, played a big role on two teams that made the finals. Most of these other guys uh, likely never made a championship team. We had talked about the Bucks, who never made it. Uh, I can't really remember any of the uh, the Sonics being playing a big role in a finals once the Suns made the finals with Barkley. I think Chambers was still on the team, but he was towards the end of his career and was, you know, in the front court rotation, but not a featured player. So it's really, uh, it, it's it's the situation you find yourself in. And role players who have played those roles on championship team often have their names live on longer than perennial all-stars who didn't get a chance to play uh to play for a championship buck did get to play for a couple of championships and still does not get uh does not get the due for his career even in his home state of maryland as you said yeah i mean it's funny like the jeff malone comparison it's like i mean maryland has a better history than the washington wizards but still it's not like they're duke i mean come on a Buck Williams night would be nice. Or maybe, you know, he doesn't want it. Maybe that's just who he is. I shouldn't speak for him. Okay, 
we have two more people. One of them's kind of gnarly. One of them's maybe one of the best all-time post-hoop success stories. And you know us. When I say success, I'm not talking about your bank account. I'm talking about just having kind of a cool-ass career. So should we do both? Should we do one? What do you want to do? I don't know. Let, let's gnarly it up. All right. Alvin Robertson, never discussed. The only player to ever have a season of 300 or more steals, which if you think about it, it's so nuts. It defies description. It means you're averaging almost, you almost average four steals a game. Just, just unreal. He's also the only guard in NBA history to have recorded a quadruple double with steals. The other quadruple doubles in history, Nate Thurmond, Akeem Olajuwon, they're done with blocks. Alvin Robertson did it with steals. He still holds the record for top steals per game average in the NBA. And yet the league never talks about this guy. You know, four-time All-Star. And they don't talk about him because he has a very ugly history of violence against women. And then there were these repugnant charges that he was cleared of, but they're so repugnant that if he was even around it in any way, the NBA is not going to want to associate with you. He was accused of being of sex trafficking minors and turning them into strippers and sex workers in Corpus Christi, Texas, which doesn't exactly sound uh, like the sort of thing that David Stern would have wanted to put on the cover of Hoop magazine. That's a bad thing to be associated with. I agree. And not because of Corpus Christi, for all of our Corpus listeners. I mean, it's just ugly stuff. And so that's why he's not discussed. But I'm bringing it up because, you know, we're not like Lenny on The Simpsons. We're not going to say, hey, who's Alvin Robertson? That's why pencils have erasers, you know. So, yeah, he's somebody we don't discuss. His stats on defensively are mind-boggling. And he did some horrible stuff. That's Alvin Robertson. Anything you want to add, Shiraz? When, when I first knew who, you know, heard of Alvin Robertson, he was putting up crazy stat lines for an otherwise yes. fairly irrelevant Spurs team. Yeah, he was the bright spot on kind of a down point in Spurs franchise history. And he was also talked of, I heard of him as the player in the NBA that you don't mess with. And I was really impressed like that because Robertson, in a way, has a bit of fat lever in him. And I'm only talking on the floor, Lafayette, uh, because he was not a big person. Again, I don't have dimensions, but I'd say maybe like 6'4", 6'5", 185 was not, uh, you know, just, just kind of looked like your NBA guard. So for him, like Lever, to have such great 
rebounding numbers to battle nightly on the boards with players so much bigger than him, but even more to be, to have that reputation as somebody that other NBA players do not fuck with. Uh, it, it was quite a rep, you know? And I didn't know if that meant that, you know, he was just like he would knock you out or... Uh, you know, if there was 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 more danger attached to that, uh, and looking at his life post playing, that is possible. But regardless, uh, Robertson just had that reputation of being a really, really tough guy who played bigger than his height, was all over the floor. I think he's actually. We had mentioned Terry Cummings a little earlier. Robertson is traded for Cummings right before David Robinson arrives in San Antonio. Uh, and he was really, really good on the Spurs, and he's really, really good on the Bucks too. Uh, so Robertson was an all-star caliber player for about a decade. Uh, and... Uh, and just a player who, at a time where there was great, great ball going on, uh, Robertson was a unique player and a really, really effective one. Wow. Very well put. And do you think, I mean... I think this is my issue with a lot of things in our society, but like, I'm sure people love sentences that start with that. But I think you can still talk about Alvin Robertson as long as you give context to who he was. I mean, obviously, not a good person. Also had 300 steals in a season. You, know, you can talk about one with the other. It's not like you're excusing him for bad acts just because he was statistically mighty on the defensive end. You know, you can talk about both, but it's weird to me when we, when we pretend some people didn't exist. But here's the guy who I said has the coolest post career. I agree with that. Oh, thank you. Um, the last one, and I got a, a little stuff to say about this guy. Brad Darty. The first thing I want to say is I was shocked to look him up on Wikipedia and see that his nickname was Big Dookie. Weird for a couple of reasons. One, big dookie means a big, big dump in the toilet, which is kind of disgusting. But also big dookie, like he's a North Carolina guy. He's a Tar Heel. Why would they possibly call him big dookie? Sorry for that call, everybody. I never called him big dookie. No. He's also known as Hooch. Now, Brad Doherty. I called him Hooch. Yes, <laughs> Turner and Hooch, classic. He also retired as the Cavs' all-time leading scorer and rebounder until all that stuff got broken by LeBron and Zadrunas, Ilgauskas. His career ends at age 28, but he still had six all-star appearances in eight seasons. What a player. Today... He is not only the co very successful co-owner of a NASCAR Cup Series team, very successful, 
He's also a NASCAR analyst for NBC. And his number 43 is retired. He was number 43 as a tribute to NASCAR legend Richard Petty. And I don't know, I just find it cool that, like we always talk about people sometimes who have succeeded dramatically in two different sports. This guy is like the Bo Jackson of basketball and NASCAR. And yet nobody talks about this guy. I mean that. No, when they talk about great centers of the 80s, nobody talks about this guy. But he was your choice, Shiraz. So big dookie, Brad Doherty, the ball is in your court. One of my favorite butterflies that we've explored recently has been the 1986 draft. Mm. Uh, was a conversation I really enjoyed. And Brad is the was the number one pick in that draft out of North Carolina. Uh, and as you said, he's good from the start. And as an as a huge Patrick Ewing fan, for the majority of the time that Ewing was in the middle for the Knicks. Brad Doherty was the center in the East who came closest to being as good as Ewing. And Brad played for those Cleveland Cavaliers teams coached by Lenny Wilkins. We have talked about and been talking about teams that could never break through and make a finals, uh, but were really, really consistently good really fun really this really that uh i love those Cavs teams uh and i think brad i thought at the time i thought brad was the best player on that team and as you said he's far more forgotten than some of his other teammates, the other uh, great players on that team. Larry Nance, his front court partner, uh, was the was the first slam dunk champion. So it was kind of referenced in that regard. Uh, Ron Harper would go on to win titles with the Lakers and the Bulls as an essential complementary piece to championship teams. And Mark Price is very often talked about as a player from that era who would be very successful in today's NBA and, uh, and had kind of a game which uh, – was duplicated by a lot of all-star guards in the decades afterwards. But at the time, he was really one of the only guards capable of pulling up from 28 and draining a three and also taking you right off the dribble to the rim in a way kind of uh, Damian Lillard before his time is kind of the uh, the most the easiest comparison that comes to mind for me of Price's game. But Dougherty was the man in the middle. And, uh, you know, he played four years at Carolina. 
So if he retired at 28, which is really sad, yeah, uh, I mean, absolutely retired in his prime, uh, I believe, because of back issues. Yeah, back uh, issues. Then that means that Brad was an all-star in something like six of his eight seasons or something. Mm-hmm. And that's how I remember him, uh, just as an all-star big man, good at everything except blocking shots. He was a huge dude who was not a rim protector, which was why he had Larry Nance behind him. Because mm-hmm. if you went, you know, if you went past or over Brad, maybe Larry could swat it. But Doherty was a low post player with an incredibly sweet touch and array of clever moves that he can finish with either hand. Uh, a really, really solid defensive rebounder and post defender. And I think most memorably, uh, Brad was an excellent passing big man. Uh he, as good a low post scorer as he was, he very often initiated the Cavs' offense from the high post. Mm-hmm. And a lot of looks that were created for Price's excellent shooting were created off Doherty's passes, uh, leading to a lot of the success of Cleveland's offense. But I remember before Sabonis came to the NBA after his physical prime had already passed. But when Sabonis was still playing in Europe, uh, Dougherty being talked about as the second best passing big man in the world. You know what people don't remember? And I'm not talking about Brad Dougherty's appearance in the movie Eddie with Whoopi Goldberg. And I only raise that because we, we mentioned singles with Xavier McDaniel as possibly eliminating him from this conversation. But I don't think Eddie rises to the level of singles. Um, and that might be the saddest sentence ever said in the history of podcasting. But the thing about Doherty is that in those eight seasons, he averaged 19 points, 10 boards per game. Patrick Ewing, I just looked it up, his career – 20 points and just under 10 boards a game. Now, obviously, much longer career, Ewing on the back end, lower stats, it brought them all down. An unfair comparison to be sure. But it's just to say that Brad Darty, as the second best big man in the East, during and not that far behind Ewing, and during a period where to be a big man was, there was just a bumper crop of terrific, terrific seven-footers down low. And Doherty was the cream of the crop, the creme de la creme. And a longer, and you know, the other thing too is that who knows if he could have played on with a bad back. He chose not to because he, he clearly, you know, number 43, Richard Bad Betty, he had other hills he wanted to climb and he did it. And that to me is really cool. And uh, it's, to me, it's a lot cooler than, you know, Michael Jordan becoming a, you know, a global capitalist empire. Like it, it's, it's much cooler that, you know, that Brad Darty was like, you know what? It's NASCAR time. The reason why I played ball so I could do NASCAR and now I've got the funds to do it. 
And, you know, so that, that I just love that. I also love that the reason why he was on the Cavs in the first place, Philly had the number one pick, and they traded it, one of the stupidest trades in history, to the Cavs for Roy Hinson, an okay power forward, and they already had Charles Barkley. That's just... That so, Darty. That would have that would have been a good combo, Doherty and Barkley. Ooh, that would have been a lot of fun. Thank you for robbing us of that at 76ers. <laughs> but that Cleveland team took the Bulls in the midst of their first three peat. Took the Bulls to a seventh game in the East Finals at least once. Uh, came about as close to knocking off Chicago as any team really did during that period. And obviously, if they had been able to break through even once, NBA history would be different. But Dougherty's name, I think, would certainly be better remembered as a basketball player than it subsequently is. And uh, while certainly not a NASCAR fan, uh, I think it's extra impressive that Brad transitioned to that sport because he's seven feet tall. And folding yourself into a car of any size has got to be a bit of a chore when you have that much legs. So uh, so here's to you, Hooch. Here's to you, Hooch. Here's to you, big dookie, Brad Darty. Well, Shiraz, this has been our longest. <laughs> I'm sorry. <clears throat> I'm, I'm playing sick. We'll edit that cough out. This has been our longest and, to me, our most fun podcast that we've done together. Shout out to Paul Pressey, Jeff Malone, Lafayette Lever, Xavier McDaniel, Dale Ellis, and Tom Chambers, Charles Linwood, Buck Williams, Alvin Robertson. I don't want to shout out Alvin Robertson, but Brad Doherty as well. Shout out to all those fine folks. Well, they're not all fine folks. Shout out for most of those fine folks. And we're going to remember you even if the NBA does not. Shiraz? Great time, my man. Uh, uh, absolutely. Uh, the best of times. Uh, it, it It's appropriate if this was our longest episode to date because uh, the contributions, the on-court careers of the gentlemen that we've been talking about uh, shouldn't be shortchanged or rushed through. So uh, I think the uh, the proper amount of time was given, and uh, and it's been a real blast reliving players of uh, of a different era, a, a distant era, who uh, who who were really great players and incredibly indicative and important uh, of the era in which they played. Well said. And speaking of the best of times, and it relates to this, I think Kurt Russell is a generationally underappreciated actor. 
Reno Hightower. There you go. <laughs> He's wearing his white shoes. Hey, for everybody out there listening, please stay frosty. In the words of M. Emmett Walsh, we are out of here. Peace. <laughs>